0: God is calling us to be human, not superhuman. And so the Christian life is not superhuman life. It's just human life. Probably one of the most inefficient things you can ever do is love. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anything that you love requires your time, your attention, your energy, and it makes demands on you. And so when productivity and efficiency become our highest values, Often what's happening is we're trying to gain control of our environments and the way you do that is by putting anything that will make demands on you at a distance and that wow. makes love hard, if not impossible.
1: Before we get into the episode, I would like to ask you a quick favor. If you're enjoying reading your Productivity, if you're getting value out of it, if you're entertained even, even could you do me a favor and write a review whether you're listening on Apple podcasts or Spotify or somewhere else that allows reviews, just taking a couple minutes to give it a good review, say what you like about it. That does loads to help new people find the show and makes me feel really nice. So do it, please. Thank you. The other thing is I just want to say thank you to the patrons, the people who support this show via Patreon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. I wouldn't be able to keep doing this without your help. So thank you. And if you are getting value out of this show, my newsletter, videos, or other resources, please consider becoming a supporter of Redeeming Productivity. You can do so through giving a one-time recurring donation at redeemingproductivity.com slash donation or by joining the Redeeming Productivity Patreon at patreon.com slash redeemingprod. Okay, now let's get into the show. Welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. This is the show that helps Christians get more done and get it done like Christians. And I am your host, Reagan Rose. Well, in this episode, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Kelly Capick, who is professor of theological studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where he's taught for 20 years. He is an award-winning author of more than 15 books, including Embodied Hope, uh, a theology meditation on pain and suffering. Which was the winner of a Christianity Today Book Award, and his latest book, "You're Only Human: How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News." Dr. Kapik, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's it's good to be with you. I'm excited about this.
1: Yeah, me too. I've been I've been reading the book. I'm not quite done with it, but mm-hmm. I knew uh, after chapter one that I had to get you on the show because oh, this is a topic that mm. productivity-minded believers need to be reminded of need to dig Mm. deep into. So maybe we can start there. Maybe we can start with the book. Um, Uh, What is your only human about?
0: Yeah, it's about a fancy word for it is finitude, uh, which just mean limits. We don't tend to use that word much because, uh, and we don't know what it means or we think it's about death, but actually it just means limits or to put it in another way. It just means being a creature. And I am interested in exploring what it means to be a human creature. Um, and I'm concerned that as Christians, we've confused finitude and sin. So we feel guilty a lot for things that we probably shouldn't be feeling guilty about. And I'm, I, if you're, some of your listeners will know what this means, I'm a Reformed theologian. That means I'm from a tradition. We take sin pretty seriously. So I'm not here denying the reality of sin but I am here deeply concerned that um we have misunderstood what it means to be a creature or what it means to be a faithful creature.
1: Yeah and I have some questions to dig deeper mm-hmm. into that because that that absolutely does strike me as the heart of the book and mm-hmm. a pretty serious problem especially under, among people who would probably be prone to listen to a show like this, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah, that want sure. to make the most of their time, they feel yeah. They feel that the life is a stewardship which is true yeah. um but we're constantly running up against our limits limits of time limits of yeah. ability even cognitive limits and yeah. you can start to beat yourself up that like why can't i do everything
0: yeah my guess this is fun with you know given the particular focus of this podcast this is fun to talk about with you guys In in the sense of my guess is you know you have a lot of people who are listening to this because they do beat themselves up a lot and they're trying to figure out how to do it better. And so I'll make it personal rather than just abstract. Part of what, and I, this is not hyperbolic. I really have been thinking and researching and uh, uh, this topic for 20 years. But on a personal level, in some ways, it comes down to when I would put my head on the pillow at night, I'd just feel guilty. And what I started to realize is that Sense that weight of guilt often wasn't because as I would review my day, I'm thinking about all the sins in my life, and it, there were sins to repent of. I'm not saying there weren't, but I realized that sense of guilt actually was primarily about I didn't get everything done that I thought I should get done, it is about productivity. And that to me is a big sign of confusing finitude and sin. And so um, how much weight and st- I'd given my to-do list and uh, productivity and efficiency. And I love productivity and efficiency. My guess is your listeners do a podcast like this do too. But I will warn myself and your listeners, I've really come to believe productivity and efficiency are often the enemies of love. And so that's worth us as Christians thinking about.
1: So what do you mean by that? Do you mean that like when I focus so much on managing my time that Mm. basically i I push relationships to the periphery because it's about i got to complete this stuff so i don't have time to be interrupted is that the idea you're getting
0: well that can be part of it um i'll put it this way probably one of the most inefficient things you can ever do is love (laughs) (laughs) um to love somebody or something right this is what new parents who love their babies all of a sudden they're like, what is going on? this thing is so dependent on me and all of my schedule and all of that I thought I could get done and I thought, oh I just add a baby to my life and you know it'll take a little bit of time but no 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 it you know or just get a puppy. anything that you love requires your time, your attention, your energy and it makes demands on you. And so when productivity and efficiency become our highest values, Actually, what can easily happen is we start to, I mean, there can be a form of efficiency that can foster love, but often what's happening is we're trying to gain control of our environments. And the way you do that is by putting anything that will make demands on you at a distance. And
1: that makes love hard, if not
0: impossible. Wow.
1: That is really fascinating.
0: Let me be clear. God can make anything and do anything in a millisecond, right? Um. So, it's not that efficiency is bad, but it's clearly not God's highest good. Mm-hmm. It, is, it can be a good, but it's not his highest good. And that's part of why we need to think about love and how it relates to those
1: things. That's very interesting. You even think about that in terms of eternity mm-hmm. and what is it like if productivity and efficiency are about getting things done. Uh, mm. you can't treat your relationships like something that you can just tie a bow on and say, okay, that's done. I checked off the relationship for the day. Right. It's almost right. like they're, they're operating in two different worlds. And, and eternally speaking, relationships are those things that are going to endure our relationship with, with the Lord, the relationship with uh, our fellow believers. Um, so it's it it's operating in, in almost two different mindsets. If you're always thinking, how do, I, how do I bring this thing to conclusion? It just it doesn't work. Yeah. When it comes to love.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's funny and I, I don't want to get in the weeds on this one too much, but even as you were just talking, I was just thinking about, I want to watch my rhetoric here, but some of the potential dangers when we tell ourselves, like with our children, quantity of time doesn't matter. It's quality of time. Well, (laughs) there could there could be some truth to that, but actually that often is more of an efficiency model driving yeah. things than anything else. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and just as a Christian life, to, so one of the chapters is called, you know, I arrange the chapters around these questions. And one of the questions is, you know, why doesn't God just instantly change me? Right. Hmm. And it's related to what you and I are talking about. So God, yeah. we think about things in our lives that are sinful or ways that we just, we wish we would stop doing certain things or become better at other things or to kind become the kind of people we want to become that we've, pretty sure that god wants us to become and it's pretty understandable especially dealing with addictions or different things i think wait a minute what why doesn't god just instantly change me what like yeah. snap of a finger if god doesn't want me to sin and i keep struggling and it's been decades then i guess just every day is a terrible day mm-hmm. like how how should we think about that and I've really come to see it's an example of. I just don't think we have a good doctrine of creation. We've reduced the doctrine of creation to debating how God made the earth and when he made it. But when you actually read Genesis and it's about good, 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 everything he makes is good. But also, you think, I don't care if you think the earth is made in six 24 hour days or, you know, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, or if you think it's each day represents. A trillion years and it was made six trillion years ago. Either way, from a Christian perspective, all of us have to admit God could have made everything faster than you can snap your fingers. Yeah. So even if it was the most conservative six 24 hour days, the fact that Genesis says God does it, does this this day, and then he does that, and he calls it good, and then he does something else the next day, it tells us from the beginning, God is comfortable with process. He actually likes process. And one of the big points of the book is that the God of creation is the same God as the God of redemption. Hmm. So when it comes to our Christian lives, we've got to understand God is not panicking by our sins and struggles. Again, it's not that he loves our sin, but God is comfortable with process. And so he Hmm. really is. He who began a good work in us is going to carry it to completion So we've got to stop panicking. It doesn't mean we don't take sin seriously, but until you understand the God of creation who originally loved process and is committed to that in our lives, until you understand that it's just despair and you will either try and work yourself up into a works righteousness kind of control or just give yourself up and feel like your agency doesn't matter. So uh, that's just an example of trying to think through the importance of, Again, I guess what made me think of that is when we're talking about efficiency, Genesis 1 is in a sense, depends how you define efficiency, but God could have done it quicker.
1: Yeah. He had all, he has all the means. Yeah, he's all got the power. all the means. He could be the most efficient being in the universe, but he chooses not to be. So why? Why? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you could accuse it's a great God question. of negligence,
0: which would be inappropriate, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that He's not negligent and is comfortable with this should tell us something.
1: Yeah. Right. And and like you said, He could instantly glorify us. Like it's it's a, it's a fascinating question. We talk about progressive sanctification, but often we don't ask why is it progressive? Right. Why is right. it instantaneous? I think that's a fascinating question.
0: Yeah. And in fact, and you you biblically and theologically, you do have this interesting dynamic. Where biblically, we are saints, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's not just a Protestant thing. It's actually, you know, Paul will write to the saints in Galatia or whatever. And you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) How awesome are these people?
1: Yeah, I don't feel very holy. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. But the point is, as you probably know, they are saints because they are united to Christ by the Spirit, right? They are these holy ones. And yet their lives are not. And so a Christian ethic is fundamentally, this is true of you. You and I are saints now live as if this is true. Right, um, right. But so there is this now, not yet. It is secure. And yet there is this process. And when we look at ourselves, we despair. When we look at Christ and the work of the spirit, then we can have hope and we can be more calm hmm. and we can, we can go at a pace and, and look for grace rather than just self-improvement
1: yeah and that i suppose is what makes you know in the subtle, that's what makes it good news that yeah. our li- that we have limits is good news so we can chill out a little bit or calm yeah. down maybe is a better word
0: well i i yeah and i think you know obviously in the book i there's lots of reasons i think it, it's good news i i actually think the very fact that the word dependence it sounds to us like a negative term in our north American it does to me too just to be mm-hmm. clear to your listeners, like when I hear that someone called me dependent, I don't think, thank you so much, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm fully aware of uh, some of the problems with unhealthy forms of codependence, etc. But God actually made us to be dependent creatures. Mm. And that meant that means from the beginning, part of the goodness of creation is we were made to be dependent on God, on our neighbor and on the earth. That is not a result of sin. Dependence isn't a result of sin. Sin just distorts those dependencies. But it's again, it's like the efficiency. We think you get more efficient by isolating yourself. And the Bible does something about connecting us with others, with God, right. others, in the earth. So those are just fascinating things to think through.
1: So speaking of Genesis, you know, in this mm. talking about the difference between the limits that we have because of sin, like and I think especially this is true in productivity, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I talk about this a lot on on this show, that right, the, the thistles and thorns mm-hmm. of our work, the difficulty of our work is a result of the cor- the curse. Mm-hmm. But as you point out in the book, all of our limits are not the result of the curse from right. Genesis three. Some of them were before mankind fell. Some of them are just facets of being a creature. So how how do you Maybe suss those two out—the difference between the limits we have because of sin and the curse, and the limits we have um, simply by virtue of God made us as creatures.
0: Yeah, it, it's a good question because part of what we're getting into is the problem of evil and suffering. And um, the short answer there—and I don't—I don't mean to be trite on this—but I wrote a book called *Embodied Hope*, and that really is trying to explore how do we think of pain and suffering, and those those thistles, and you know, how to—I actually think lament is very important for us biblically and but lament is built on the goodness of creation the reason why we hmm. lament is cuz it's not good hmm. is that um so ha- that's that's one side and they can explore that more but that would be more sin and suffering limits in these other ways are um let me let me approach it in this way uh, there's a chapter on have we misunderstood humility And uh, my short answer is yes, I think we have. And what I mean by that is as Christians, if you ask Christians, why should you be humble? We kind of, there's a lot of this in the tradition too. We say, well, because we're sinners. Again, I believe we are sinners. And I think the fact that we are sinners should contribute to the fact that we should be humble. However, when you try and build the idea of humility on sin, on our sinfulness, It creates all kinds of problems
1: like with Jesus, for example, right?
0: Exactly. (laughs) Amen, brother. You're, you're more clever than most people to get that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, and, and, but also just pastorally, because then what you need to do to become more humble is focus on what a bad sinner you are. Hmm, But so here's the, here's the question. Even if there were no sin in fall, were humans made to be humble? And the answer is yes. Because humility is a recognition that we're dependent on God, dependent upon others, and dependent upon the earth. So that humility doesn't just say, in a sinful world, humility says, I'm sorry, right? Please forgive me. But also, even if there were no sin, humility says, can you help me? Hmm. Um, how do I do this? Uh, all those kind of questions. And There is a joy. Once you start to understand that God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, because humility rightly understood is joyful. It it helps us cultivate our delight and awareness of God and his presence and work. Helps us to stop competing with everyone and start going, Mm -hmm. wow, look what you bring that I don't bring, and I don't need to bring it, right? I need you, and I have something to offer, but not everything, and you have something to offer. And we're actually all in this together. once you start to embrace that it becomes i think a path of joy and liberty
1: wow that's yeah i can even as you talk about it i can sense i can feel even in my own heart the relief of just Mm. being able to admit that i can't do it all i don't have everything i need other people i need god Yeah. and what you said about it not being a competition i don't have Mm. something to prove uh yeah, you can see how what a basis for unity that makes, especially within the church.
0: It takes the entire church to be the one body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are wrong if we think visitors don't uh prisoners don't need to be visited, the hungry don't need food, you know, all of these kind of things, the traffic people need care and attention, the gospel needs to be preached, um, etc. But no individual needs to bear that themselves. This is mm-hmm. so. It's not just I'm dependent on God. I'm dependent on others, and as the body of Christ, so that again, missionaries shouldn't have to apologize for asking for money. They're giving us this invitation to get to participate with them. Does that make yeah. sense? Kind of what no, I'm trying absolutely. to navigate there.
1: Yeah, and I, I loved. I remember you used the term. I think it was activism fatigue Mm, in the book that, 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 that burden of feeling
0: compassion fatigue. Yeah. yeah, And and activism would be the same kind of thing. Right?
1: So you have all of this, all of these things that, you know, you, that, that, that Christ has called us to do. And you Mm -hmm. think that that's all, all those were for you particularly. Exactly.
0: And that's crushing. And so will you try and do it all yourself and die? (laughs) Or will you try and act like, nah, none of that's real. And that's disobedience yeah right so i think well both sides are disobedience right uh right trying to be the messiah yourself is a problem and trying to act like the messiah wasn't serious is a problem so let's be faithful as the body of christ
1: yeah, it's interesting that the solution to both sides of those uh comes down to humility too you know mm, a lot of the that's a nice one. lot put of it. The, i like that the war between the two groups is, mm. is pride yeah you said um, it, not me. I just agree with <laughs> <to> you. <laughs> you get the hate mail now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, you you talk in the book about time. Uh, there's a really mm-hmm. interesting section about uh, how how our modern conception of time has shifted throughout mm-hmm. time, and I thought that was really fascinating. You, you talked about the difference between. Um, you said ritual time and clock time like we mm-hmm. we think in terms of clock time post-industrial mm-hmm. revolution uh whereas you know, previously people thought in terms of epochs eras morning right. noon things like that and that the clock time thing which all of us just assume is normal yes exactly. is is often the uh the source of some of the tyranny we feel yeah. with trying mm-hmm. to get everything done maybe could you flesh that out a little bit Speaking to that yeah, that's a great question. There's there this essay that was
0: written, I want to say 1937 or something. Like that. It was on the tyranny of time and it was an academic article and, uh, the scholar basically made the, the case at the time and by and large, it's, people agree with it, that the biggest distinguishing factor he, he makes the biggest distinguishing factor between like the ancient world and the early 20th century was a conception of time. And you're like, really, that's the thing. Um, but he's like, this so changes us culturally and how we relate to everything. So the way I would talk about it is scholars will talk about there's both contextual and non-contextual time. And we are living our view of time is what it's kind of, and you were hinting at it, is what they would call non-contextual time. So
1: hmm.
0: if, it's 11 o'clock at night and I walk into the kitchen and I turn on the light because of electricity, the light goes on. And then I open up my laptop and it starts to buzz. And I think I've got an hour of work to do. So, and, and it's 11 o'clock and from 11 to 12, there's an hour to do it. So in other words, that's non-contextual. We're ignoring that it's dark outside, that our blood sugar is low, that we have we need to sleep our body's telling us to sleep that we've all and all these other things that you know you, you just go i this is affecting my relationship with my kids my spouse intimacy all these kind of things we're like no, no no time is time so if you if you have eight hours of work or one hour of work you just do it when you do it because it's all the same whereas contextual time looks at how much light is outside? What is the season? Uh, there's a reason why they talk about long days and short days. It's about sunlight effects. And and uh, farmers, there would be ter- certain times a year where you worked super long, hard days, but you didn't do that all the time. There's no way you could sustain it, but you would do it according to the seasons. And so we're like, well, look at how slothful they are. They're taking weeks off but they they've just done something they're doing this kind of seasonal thing Uh, he's since died but there was an irish priest poet who talks about um basically our disharmony with time creates all of this violence in us um Hmm. and and that our anxiety um or well he he says i guess his line is stress um is basically living out of harmony with time, and I would change that and just say anxiety is is living, you know, in at war with time or something like that. So, I in the book I talk about some of the good things about stress. I think it is part of the way God designed us. Uh, you can run faster when you hear the roar of a lion, right? You can think quicker at certain times. You can do soldiers can, you know, the adrenaline starts to pump. We were made to be able to. Part of our design is that stress can work in episodic moments to help us perform. But the problem is we've taken something like that. It relates to time and clocks. We've taken those episodic ideas of stress and we've made them a lifestyle. Hmm. And we, we know what happens. You, you can see this with military personnel who are forced to stay in the battlefield longer than they should. And all of these studies are coming back. You can be on high alert for a time. If you extend that, the consequences are devastating physically, psychologically, et cetera. Well, we are, we are in a massive cultural experiment and the data is coming back and it is massive evidence of the physical, emotional, relational, psychological damage it's doing. And so I rather, I think the problem is not stress, it's anxiety. Anxiety becomes the next thing that happens. Of this problematic relationship to time yeah. and productivity,
1: I think that people would agree with you just experientially. Mm-hmm. You know, I think most people when we were at we we're at like record highs of, uh, you know, um, people having stress, anxiety, yeah. things like that, just documented um, medically. But I guess the the question is what do you do about it some people like people might hear that and they say i agree but i (laughs) my job is from nine to five like what do i do you know yeah i can't take a nap in the middle of the day i can't you know we can't go home uh when, when it gets dark
0: yeah so it is a fascinating question and the last chapter of the book i actually have it's it's the longest chapter and it does have some actual i mean i hope I have practical advice throughout the book, but the last chapter is devoted to certain things, things like Sabbath, not very mm-hmm. popular. It's becoming popular again. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's interesting, um, in some circles, you use the word Sabbath and people all want to debate and get angry about it, a positive or negative. But when I'm in a different Christian circle that's never really known about the Sabbath, just assumed it, it was no, and you say, listen, do you know that God made us so that one in seven days, we just, you just are made to just worship and rest and delight and feast and be with you know delight in god's earth and anyways that kind of thing like no that can't be like it sounds too good sounds too good to be true i mean god God wants us to go all the time debating about the legalism (laughs) and in others like i i actually think this is a christian apologetic right it's fascinating in the ancient church we We totally don't know. But in the ancient church in the early centuries, one of the most appealing things about Christianity was not all the things you were to do. It was some of it was the things it said you didn't have to do. It was the same kind of radical nature where ancient Jews were viewed as lazy because people worked, you know, if you were poor, you were working seven days a week. And it was crazy that these Jews and then Christians say, no, 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 you don't have to work constantly. And I think it's time for us to recapture some of our biblical rich tradition. Uh, So that's just an example. I mean, there's a bunch of other kinds of things. Um, But when to get to your question, when you say, you know, people say, what do I do? It's fascinating. I was even being interviewed by someone who's a, a manager of a pretty big company. He's got at his level he probably has 25 employees maybe maybe it's 50 i don't know what it is um and he's just so burned out and he's like i can't do anything so well you're over this office that he's in charge of what if you what if you did some experiments what if you felt, what if you guys said well let's do i don't know 10 hours four days a week and, and then we, and then they get three day weekend or whatever i don't i i'm not qualified to give you but but think to that. And he's like, no, 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 because I have people over me. And if no one's in the office, then people are angry. So it becomes this, we're all waiting for someone else to do yeah. the hard things. And so I would just tell your listeners, cause most of us aren't managers. It takes courage to do things to, to recognize your humanity. And I have now, I have now become committed in my life because I sit so much Little things like I go, okay, I need to go for a little walk. And so I live on a campus or, you know, I work at this college campus and I go check my mail like three times a day. I know there's no mail <laughs> there's there, no mail. <laughs> you know, most of those times. But I, it forces me to get up, to breathe, to slow down, to move, um, to have thoughts. I I actually think we, we have to do, there's a reason why people would do smoking breaks. Hmm. And when they don't have the cigarettes anymore, we're just like, no, no, no. Just work the whole time. Yeah. And none of us can do it. Right. Right. And even non-Christian studies, as you probably know, because of the stuff you're studying, even people in productivity are like, this is not, this isn't even efficient. This doesn't work. You, your creativity goes down, your productivity goes down. But so we just pretend like we're working constantly.
1: Yes. Yeah, and it's so inefficient. Yeah, I mean, there's even just in the last in the last two years, there's been so many um, very mainstream. There's been studies and then some mainstream articles that have come out in New York Times, big big publications yeah, yeah. on is the forty-hour work week dead? You know, and so people right. are questioning it. And I loved what you said that it, it could be a very good apologetic. And mm. I've I've said this often with just thinking of how a Christian thinks about work in general. Mm. It it is. It is a wonderful way in so many different aspects of it. How we approach integrity, why, why how we derive meaning from our work, and that mm. as we work, we're working under the glory of God. And then even as you're talking about that, the way we think of time, the way we think of rest, the way we appreciate our creatureliness by uh, honoring the Sabbath, that that's a testimony, and it's and it's weird. And I think mm. that's one of the things that you you can't really uh, you can't have a testimony at least a visible testimony mm. unless you're a little weird. Yeah, yeah there would was be, some <laughs> right? <laughs> it yeah. would be wonderful if if Christians were were the ones who were kind of leading the charge on that and say, "Hey, how can we live in a way that's more um and work in a way that's more in line with the way God made us?" Yeah. And that that when people ask why, we can explain. one of the
0: things that surprised me in the research, and I just thought, "This can't be," and I kept digging into it, and it is. Um, if you ask any of us, we all think we are working way more now than people did 50 years ago, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. But actually the research is that is a highly questionable and most likely untrue statement because when you, the, the most accurate way to test is you have people do these log things. They just, it's a very simple thing, but to actually keep track of when you're working and when you're not. And the data seems to suggest that actually people aren't quote unquote working any more than they were 50 years ago
1: Hmm.
0: but why do we all feel it and i think it gets back to contextual non-contextual time but so one of the great things is we have laptops and phones and so you could you could go home right pandemic a lot of people working from home but you can work from home that can be a wonderful thing it can liberate in all kinds of ways But as we also know, that now means you never are off when you have a cell phone and you're at your kid's soccer game and you're checking it to see if your boss is writing you, even though you're at a soccer game and you're not working, you're on or it's also not even just when we're working. It's just we are phones and I don't I'm not against technology, but it's an example. We never turn off. And so mm-hmm. we fill up any space by going through Facebook or checking ESPN or, you know, whatever. And just times of silence, times of being present with people and not distracted. That I think is all contributing to why we just put it under this lump of, we work too hard. We work too much. There's a lot more going on. That's pretty inhumane. And it's, yeah. and so we're, we, we blame work for it all, but there's some other life, decisions we are all making. So again, I think as Christians, one of the things that might be really important to our witness is do we foster humane ways of living? And I, I would just put it things like as Christians, when we go out to dinner with someone, are you looking at your phone? Or are you really with that person? Yeah. Um, or even do you ask questions or do you just talk? And I, I tell people this all the time. It's super uncomfortable Uh, test your listeners on this go next time you go out with another couple or someone else to lunch or dinner, pay attention to how many questions get asked of you.
1: Hmm.
0: And it's amazing how often it's zero. Hmm. Um, and if you do happen to find that someone asked you a bunch of questions, you might want to ask yourself did you ask any questions right yeah but all of that th- there are there are certain inhumane kind of things going on in us culturally and personally that I think as Christians we we want to fight to be
1: human yeah that's really good I just thought this was so interesting there was a part where you talked about high school and how yeah. high school the demands of high school shape our expectations yeah, of our productivity great. could you go into that a little bit I just thought that was so interesting.
0: It's an example. I didn't plan on studying that and researching it, but my kids were in high school and then I started working on it. And you realize, so here, a lot of your listeners, this will resonate. Um, An average high school kid. Now, some of it, to be honest, is high schools in affluent neighborhoods of public or private, uh, that kind of thing. There are some differences depending on some of those factors. Having said that, a fairly common high school day for a kid, you leave to school 7.30 in the morning you're in school till three, three thirty. You immediately then go to an extracurricular activity. It's a sport, or band, or theater, or whatever it is. Robotics. You do that till about six at night. You rush home. You quickly eat some food, and then you basically do homework until bedtime, yeah. until eleven o'clock, and you do that every day. By and large, and some other activities get shoved in there, which is why then some, you know, well, when, what I realized is when you've been, and then we picked that up in college and it's, so I'm a college professor and I've been talking about this stuff publicly for a while. And so, um, people want to talk about it. And I had a a number of years ago, I had a student who we went to lunch and she brought me a chart of her week printed out color coded. And it showed how she used every single hour of the week. And she, and then she had a list and she said on this is everything you guys, my. Professors, parents, everyone, these are things everyone says I should do things like simple things, like you should get eight hours of sleep. We all say that, right? You should not just shove food down your mouth, but you should sit and actually eat a meal with people, you know, three times a day, that kind of thing. And. It was insane. It was it literally is impossible to do everything yeah. that we're asking her to do. And then you realize so you've been trained in high school and then many of those kids go on to college and then you graduate, which means if you're not working and going hard at it from seven in the morning until 11, you feel like you're being slothful, unproductive. And so I actually in the book I argue that, Netflix bingeing and endless screen time like when I was talking about the person at the soccer game I actually don't blame those things. I know we as Christians are like, "Oh, look at Netflix." I now see I think those things are sign of a de- signs of a deeper malady. Hmm. And that's what I'm getting at in the book. I actually think Facebook is not to blame. The internet is not to blame. But the fact that we spend so much time on those things, I think is an escape because we just, it's inhumane how much we're trying to do and feel like we should do. So of course you want to escape for a while from this endless demand. And I, anyways, I think we've catechized kids in high school and college to, to think you need to be doing something constantly and it's hurting us. Wow.
1: That's, that's so insightful. So I guess the the pushback. Let me represent the listener yeah, of this sure. podcast. Let me represent myself too. Yeah, and I know you yeah. talk about this in the book. We, I, you hear these things. We talk about these things, and, um, you know, you feel a sense of relief. Yes, okay, I don't, I don't need to be, I don't need to feel guilty. I can't do it all. I need right. to say, notice something things. I need to get into some more mm-hmm. creaturely rhythms with my life, yeah. and live like I, I'm not uh, a god or something. Right. But then, how do you, how do you balance that with, um, you know, the biblical um, instruction to to be disciplined? You know, there's there's a lot of times in life where you do, and I'm sure you do too, where you just have to press through mm. exhaustion or difficulty in a, in a season um, to finish something, like probably like a book, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I can I can see myself wanting to take these words of encouragement that you're mm. offering and offering in the book. And I can see my wicked little heart twisting them and saying, okay, I, I, and using them as an excuse to right. be lazy when I ought not to be lazy. And right. to, you know, so the other side of it and just say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm only human. So I'm not right. going to do, do that. So how do you, how do we find the balance between acknowledging our limits, but not using them as an excuse to be slothful? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Great question. Super good question. Um, so a couple of different things. The first thing I would just say is absolutely, there are times when you've got to press hard, right? Mm-hmm. You Whether it's say, I work with college students, midterms, finals, you got a pay per due, there are times when you need to put in super long days, right? It's the stress thing. There are times when you need to be on high alert and work super hard and push through. However, when you try and do that as a college student and live on four hours of sleep, not for one day or two every three months, but five out of seven days a week, it will literally destroy you, right? There's a a recent book came out right before mine, a woman who's in her thirties, very successful, CNN reporter, all of this has come to faith. But part of what happened is she was a high achiever, working, constantly pushing through and her body gave out and all these other things started happening. So all that to say, I do, when I say limits and embrace them, I'm not saying I'm for in innovation, I'm for all of that. I think, we, but I do think we do it as groups and other kinds of things. So I'm not against pushing hard. However, here's my honest pastoral word, people listening to this podcast and you your stronger temptation is not that you're going to be slothful, but you've been told that's your temptation. And so you're constantly on the alert for it. So my pastoral word would be explore what we actually think is lazy because a lot, like, is it lazy? Do you feel guilty reading a book? Does the book have to be about productivity? Does the book have to be related to your job? Right. Um, and I actually think when you explore what we think we mean by lazy, we'll often find some unnerving things. And it's another example of, if I'm honest, where I think we have a weak view of creation. Hmm. God made us to enjoy his creation, to delight in it. Is a walk slothful? right, is is going for a walk, is resting, is taking a nap, is like, what does that look like? And any of these things could be slothful. Um, but it, I, I actually had an academic dean tell me one time that his president of a university walked into his office while the guy was reading. He's an academic VP. <laughs> and the president said oh i'm glad you're not doing anything and he and he made the guy feel guilty like if that (laughs) is his job to read (laughs) exactly if that is happening in an academic situation because we are we have been we have for so long tried to make machines like humans but actually what's happened is we've made people like machines and so i would i would in the most gentle way i could i would just encourage you to think Maybe what you think is lazy is actually healthy leisure. Mm -hmm. It's actually part of how God made you. Um, it's not lazy to sit and just watch your kids play and just watch them, you know, and, uh, you know, it's fascinating. You, you find really good friends. And I remember in Scotland and these two old guys, super close being on a train. And one of the signs of the depth of their friendship is just being quiet on a train, sitting across from each other, not talking and looking out the window for an hour at a time. And we're like, well, you should use that time to get some work done. And so anyways, I think I, I just, again, don't think we have any idea how culturally conditioned we are.
1: Yeah.
0: And so it's affecting our interpretation of the Bible. It's Ben Franklin who says time is money. It's not Jesus. <laughs> you know, Jesus is actually... He doesn't like sloth, but I think what we think is sloth and what he's talking about are very different things.
1: That's a good so. word. Yeah, throughout this conversation we've had and in the book frequently that that connection between um us as human what it means to be human and creation it just keeps coming up and up mm. and up and I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about the um the contextual time mm. and it occurred to me as so you were talking about that the context of that time was basically the rhythms of, of creation. It was, Mm. it was nature. And to, to understand that, that the Lord um, made the sun to rise at a certain time and set at a certain Mm. time and to be in different rhythms and that your, your own hunger, your own need for sleep are, Mm -hmm. are realities. Would you, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, but would you say that it's fair to say that, that maybe one of the, from a high level, the first step to recognizing your creatureliness is to sort of acknowledge your connection to creation your de- your dependence mm. on creation itself
0: yeah. i th- that's a great application i actually do think that's quite important um for me one of the biggest steps has been walks being outside whenever i can Um trying to i just feel like it was such a waste of my time to be honest um if i gotta work, i'm gonna work out and do it but actually the nature part has been important um, especially when I find that I'm, uh, anger is right below the surface for me. Some of those things, um, not too long ago, I found myself on a walk and I just had the space and sat by a pond, which I'm like, this is st- stupid. What am I doing? You know, like I'm not, Mr. Rogers, come on, Cabot, get it together. <laughs> but, but it actually, it was quite healing for me. It was, it's yeah. like, you can only hear God when you just are willing to spend time with him. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think we kind of live like orphans and, and the kind of productivity. So let me use this as an example. So in California, there was this family and they adopted um, a kid. I want to say he was like six or seven, maybe he was eight, something like that. And, you know, they adopted him, that he was their child now. And one day the mom was in the bedroom, like straightening up and, she was making the bed and she found this like peanut butter and jelly sandwich under a pillow. And she's like, really angry. Like you were like, what are you doing? But then she, the kid wasn't there. And then she started looking around and she started finding food shoved all over the bedroom hidden. And then she realized this kid had been an orphan and he never knew. He just, he was on his own. And so he was just preparing. And so when, when the mom and dad talked to the kid, they said, listen, just so you know, you can keep storing food, but you don't have to, because we are never going to leave you. We're never going to forsake you. We're going to be with you. And I think some of our push for productivity is like, listen, the truth is, I know we all say we believe in God, but we're on our own. We've got to do this ourselves. Mm -hmm. And for me, the biggest thing, which we haven't talked about that's been so helpful in this is learning to embrace my finitude has actually fostered prayer. Interesting. Uh, I just think when we deny our limits, we don't pray. When you recognize your limits, you can't help, but pray. And to, and I think prayer is a great test case. The fact that we, none of us will say this cause it's so impious, but the reality is one of the main reasons we don't pray is it's We don't feel like we're doing anything we're not getting anything done it's a waste of our time we're not we don't even think the prayers rise above the ceiling and that should make us go wait a minute what's going on here right it's again the efficiency thing it's love it's i'm an orphan so there's all i I think the pastoral importance of this is huge
1: absolutely i think that's a an excellent note to to end it on Mm -hmm. there too that that if you recognize your finitude, then you should recognize that the most productive thing you could do is spend some time in prayer. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah I just, I, I do that idea of prayer is a test case. People who deny their finitude don't pray. People who mm-hmm. recognize their finitude can't help but pray.
1: Amen. Well, Dr. Capic, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been a, a fascinating conversation for me, and uh, I hope it's been enjoyable for you and for the listeners, too. This has been great. Thank you very much, Ray. The book, again, is "Your Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. It's excellent. I recommend it to everyone. Uh, it's available everywhere. Dr. Kappick, I'll give you the last word. Is there anything else you'd want to share? Anything else um, uh, if people want to find out more about your work?
0: I guess I would just leave your readers with this idea that God is calling us to be human, not superhuman. He doesn't expect us to. He's not mad at what he made. He's mad at the sin that just doesn't. He doesn't hate Reagan. He hates the sin that's distorting Reagan. And so he's committed to getting rid of the sin because he likes what he made. And so the Christian life is not superhuman life. It's just human life. And I think reconnecting that could be really helpful in our lives.
1: Well, I appreciate you, brother. Thanks so much for doing this. You got it. Thanks for the time. For more productivity from a Christian worldview, check out my weekly newsletter, Reagan's Roundup. Every Thursday, I share an insight along with the five best links I found that week that I think will help you in your journey to becoming a more productive Christian. It's totally free. Just go to newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com to sign up for Reagan's Roundup. That's newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com.